0: Well, hello there. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. Today, we're diving into a pretty hefty topic, so I want you to get your walking shoes on. Maybe you're listening on your commute. Maybe you're tackling Cleaning out your closet, I don't know what it is, but take advantage of this time together so that you can maximize your time, but still be learning for nursing school or learning for on the job. Before we dive into our episode, let's take a quick minute for the listener shout out. So this shout out goes out to Ashley, who says this about boot camp. Bootcamp gave me the confidence to complete each semester with grace and commitment. I tried nursing school in 2019 and did not know about the bootcamp. I was unsuccessful that time, but starting again in fall of 21 and going through Straight A Nursing's Crucial Concepts Bootcamp in the summer before helped prepare me for success. Thank you for helping me be successful in nursing school. Ashley, that is fantastic news. I realized this was a while ago that you submitted this feedback, and by now you might be getting about halfway. You're probably more than halfway through school, and I hope things are going well. I hope you hear this, and please send me an email so that I can hear how you're doing. Okay, let's dive into talking about the topic for this week, which is musculoskeletal abnormalities in children, and I can already tell by the time I get through this, I'm going to have a real hard time saying the word musculoskeletal, plus some of these disease conditions are a bit of a mouthful. I'm going to do my best. Okay, so a big part of learning about pediatrics is understanding different musculoskeletal disorders. Rather than going through each one using the full-blown straight nursing latte method, we're going to instead just do a concise summary of the key ones in this episode. So like I said, we're going to be here for a bit. So the first one we'll talk about are soft tissue injuries. Now, these can be classified as contusions, dislocations, strains, and sprains. So that's contusions, dislocations, strains, and sprains. So a contusion is a bruise, basically, and it's caused by direct impacts such as the child falling and hitting their arm against one of their toys. Now, a dislocation occurs when two bones separate at the joint. So in children, the most common location for dislocation is the shoulder. It can be incredibly painful and cause temporary immobilization and deformity of the joint. So dislocations are initially treated with RICE, and we'll talk about RICE a bit here as I'm going through these soft tissue injuries. RICE is rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And we use this RICE treatment in hopes that the joint will move back into place on its own, and sometimes it does. But if the dislocation does not resolve, it will require some kind of manual manipulation followed by immobilization, which would be wearing a splint or a sling for a few weeks. Now, repeated dislocations or dislocations that have severely impacted nearby blood vessels or nerves or ligaments may require surgery. And then we have strains and sprains. So a strain occurs when that muscle or tendon tears due to being stretched beyond its capability. You've done this. I've done this. We call it a pulled muscle. A strain can range from being very mild with less than 5% of the fibers being affected to a moderate strain where there's more damage and more fibers involved to a severe strain, which is basically complete rupture of the tendon or the muscle. And then mild and moderate strains, basically, we're treating those with rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation, but severe strains, those ruptures, may require a cast and even surgery. And then we have sprain. A sprain is an injury to the ligaments surrounding a joint that is connecting two bones together. As with the strain, there are three subtypes. A mild sprain involves a small amount of stretching of the ligaments. A moderate sprain involves a bit of tearing of the ligament. And then that severe sprain involves a complete tear of the ligament. Sprains are also treated with rice, but severe injuries may require longer-term immobilization and possibly even surgery. So that was the soft tissue injuries. Now let's dive into fractures. There are some key differences to note between fractures in children and fractures in adults. So in children, they tend to be more common in the distal forearm, in the ulna or the radius. They often occur around that growth plate since this area is weaker. In fact, about a third of childhood fractures are growth plate fractures. And pediatric bones heal more quickly than adult bones. For example, a toddler may only need to wear a cast for four weeks compared to six or eight weeks in an adult. Additionally, younger children are not able to really reliably convey signs and symptoms in the same way as an adult. So along with showing general signs of discomfort or pain, some signs of fracture in a young child are things like refusal to crawl or refusal to walk or refusing to use the affected limb. In children, fractures are most commonly associated with motor vehicle accidents, falls, and sports activities. Fractures in infants should be evaluated further in a general sense as there is potential for non-accidental trauma in this population. Here's a little pro tip for you. If the x-ray shows fractures in multiple stages of healing, think non-accidental trauma or think osteogenesis imperfecta, which we're going to talk about more in just a bit. All right, let's talk about the types of fractures. An incomplete fracture occurs when only one side of the bone is fractured and the other side is either unaffected or it bends in slightly. So let's look at some different types of incomplete fractures. A stress fracture is just tiny little cracks in the bone that can occur due to repetitive trauma, and it's more likely to occur in active children, like athletic children. The bones most commonly affected by these hairline tiny fractures are the legs, the feet, the arms, and the spine. Stress fractures are typically treated with rice and avoidance of weight-bearing while that fracture is healing. Next, we have the green stick fracture. In this type of incomplete fracture, one side of the bone is broken. The other is intact, but it's bent. Green stick fractures are usually treated with closed reduction and casting, though some will require surgery. Now, since adult bones do not bend, green stick fractures only occur in children. And then a torus fracture is also called a buckle fracture. This is another type of incomplete fracture. These are the most common type of fracture in the pediatric population. They tend to occur around the wrist as the child tries to catch himself when falling. Torus fractures are often treated with a removable brace and they tend to heal quickly. Now let's move on to talk about complete fractures. So a complete fracture occurs when both sides of the bone are affected. A complete fracture is definitely going to be less stable than an incomplete fracture and, of course, require more intensive treatment. Treatment for complete fractures can range from casting and traction to surgery and will depend on the type and the severity of that fracture. So, a segmental fracture occurs when the bone is broken in two different locations and a section of bone has become separated. That's a segmental fracture. A comminuted fracture occurs when the bone is broken into more than two pieces. And then there's a transverse fracture. This type of fracture, the break itself, occurs perpendicular to the long axis of the bone. So basically, that fracture is going across the bone. In an oblique fracture, the break or the fracture line occurs at an angle. And then there's spiral fracture. This is a unique type of fracture where the bone is broken like in rotation, and the fracture line wraps around the bone. These are usually caused by falls and other traumas. And it used to be thought that spiral fractures were highly specific for child abuse, like somebody grabbing the child and twisting their arm. However, we now know that these types of fractures can occur from falls when the child's Main weight load is on the leg, and then as they fall, the bone is subjected to rotational force, and that causes the spiral fracture. And then we have an open fracture, also called a compound fracture. In this type of injury, the broken bone or bone fragment causes an open wound or a break in the skin. Open fractures carry a high risk for infection and will always require surgery. And then we have physial fractures, also called growth plate fractures. So these fractures occur in the weakest area of bone, where that growth plate is located. A potential complication of this type of fracture is that the child can have issues with growth of the bone. Treatment for growth plate fractures involves immobilization, a cast or splint, manipulation or surgery, and physical therapy. And then compression fractures. Compression fractures of the spine typically occur in children with either osteogenesis imperfecta or in those who use steroid medications long-term, which weakens the bones. They can also be due to a fall or motor vehicle accident. And treatment can range from rest and a back brace to surgery. Okay, now let's dive into other musculoskeletal disorders in children, and we'll start with developmental dysplasia of the hip, or DDH. So this condition involves abnormalities of the acetabulum or femoral head that can be caused by genetic, mechanical, or physiological factors. Babies at risk for DDH are those with a family history. Babies that have congenital disorders such as spina bifida. Babies who experienced crowding in utero. And babies who've had a difficult or prolonged delivery. So signs of DDH in infants are a positive ortolani or Barlow maneuver. Shorter limb on the affected side. Asymmetrical gluteal and thigh folds and decreased abduction. And then in older children, the signs of DDH are things like a shorter limb, telescoping mobility, which is present in hip dislocation, a positive Trendelenburg sign, waddling, and lordosis. Note that a Trendelenburg sign is positive when the patient places their weight on that affected side and the pelvis rises up on that side and then dips on the opposite side. Treatment for newborns and infants involves wearing a Pavlik harness for 22 to 24 hours a day for about 6 to 12 weeks, though some children may need surgical reduction. A key thing to know about a Pavlik harness is that it is considered a dynamic brace because it's not rigid and it allows the child to move their legs. It holds the baby's legs in a position that allows the hip joint to align properly so that it develops normally. And if you look at pictures for a Pavlik harness, it kind of looks like the baby's sitting in a sling and it just holds their legs in that position so that the hip can align properly. Treatment, though, in older infants and toddlers is a little bit more intense. It includes the child wearing an abduction brace, but they may need surgery and a spica cast. So the cast is typically changed every six weeks to allow for growth and worn for a three to six month period overall, and it will depend on the child. Once the cast is removed for good, the child wears a hip abduction brace for several weeks as they build up their strength. A key teaching tip that could be on exams is to teach parents to not pick up the child by their waist, as this puts all the weight of the cast on the child's lower body. Instead, pick up the child by the waist while supporting their thighs and their trunk. It's also not recommended to use the crossbar of the cast as a handle, as this could cause the cast to break. Treatment for even older children usually means surgery, casting, and extensive physical therapy. So definitely one of those things that it's better to catch early. Next up, we have talipes equinovarus, which is way more easily <laughs> stated as club foot. In this condition, the foot is pointed down and turned inward. It may be due to hereditary factors, position in utero, or abnormal development. When the cause of the club foot is due to malpositioning, it generally responds well to stretching and even serial casting, which allows for gradual improvement. In some mild cases, it may even resolve on its own. Congenital and teratologic talipes equinovarus, however, usually requires surgery and casting to prevent relapse.
1: on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.
0: And then there's Metatarsis adductus, which you may also hear called Metatarsis varus. This is the most common congenital foot deformity in children and involves abnormal adduction of the toes and forefoot. Adduction. It often occurs with a kidney-shaped lateral border due to intrauterine positioning or crowding. Treatment for this condition is often not even needed as it may resolve on its own. However, it can be resolved more quickly with gentle manual manipulation. In cases of severe deformity, manipulation and serial casting may be needed. Now, let's talk about skeletal limb deficiency. Limb deficiency or limb abnormalities usually refers to a congenital condition that involves a loss of function. So, there are three key types. Amelia is a congenital defect that involves one or more missing limbs. Then there's meromelia, which involves the partial absence of one or more limbs. And then focomelia. This is a condition in which a well-developed hand or foot is near the location of the shoulder or hip due to a deficiency in the long bones. So we have amelia, maromelia, and focomelia. Now, in cases where the skeletal limb deficiency is not hereditary, it may be due to exposure to certain medications, viruses, chemicals, and smoking. An example of a medication that caused focomelia is thalidomide. It's an immunosuppressant medication that is now used to treat multiple myeloma and leprosy. But in the 1950s and the 1960s, it was used for its sedative effects and all kinds of other things. It was used for colds, flu, nausea, and morning sickness. As such, more than 10,000 children were born with focomelia in what has now been deemed the thalidomide tragedy. Treatments for skeletal limb deficiencies include prosthetics, splints, bracing, physical therapy, and occupational therapy in order to maintain functional ability. And the treatment modality will, of course, depend on the individual patient. Now let's talk about osteogenesis imperfecta, which you may also hear called brittle bone disease. So this is a genetic connective tissue disorder that causes bones to fracture very easily. Patients with osteogenesis imperfecta have reduced type 1 collagen, which leads to faulty bone mineralization, abnormal bone formation, and extreme fragility of the bones. So some signs and some symptoms of osteogenesis imperfecta are bone deformities, because they break and then they heal abnormally, fractures in various stages of healing, short stature, which becomes more noticeable at about 12 months of age and beyond, Blue sclera, not in all types of osteogenesis imperfecta, but it is present in some types. Blue sclera. Conductive hearing loss due to abnormal bones of the ear. Dental abnormalities. Cardiac abnormalities, such as aortic root dilation and valve insufficiency. And frequent lung infections or respiratory difficulties due to reduced lung capacity poor secretion clearance, and ineffective cough. Now, there's no cure for osteogenesis imperfecta, and treatment is supportive. Fractures are treated as they occur, and patients are prescribed bisphosphonates to increase bone density. Other medications may include anti-rank ligand antibodies, parathyroid hormone, and growth hormone. Surgery may be needed to correct deformities, and prevention strategies include physical therapy, braces, splints, and dressing young children in multiple layers to provide additional padding because kids fall down. And because osteogenesis imperfecta is a hereditary condition, genetic counseling is advised in those with a family history. Next up, we have leg calve perthes disease. This is a self-limiting vascular necrosis of the femoral head that only affects children. It can occur at any age of childhood, though it most often occurs between the ages of four and 10 years old. The etiology of leg perthes is unknown, but it is thought to be due to a temporary alteration in circulation or vascular supply to the femoral epiphysis. Signs and symptoms of leg perthes include soreness or pain of the hip, thigh, and or knee of that affected side, achiness or stiffness of that affected side, an intermittent limp, and limited range of motion. Treatment for leg perthes involves rest, casting, or surgery, depending on the age of the child and severity of the condition. The cast worn for this condition is a special cast that keeps the legs spread apart in a wide V and is typically worn full-time for a period up to six months Children with leg perthes have a higher risk of developing degenerative arthritis, especially when there is significant damage to the femoral head. Now let's talk about slipped capital femoral epiphysis. This is the most common hip disorder affecting adolescents. It involves a spontaneous displacement of the proximal femoral epiphysis and results in displacement and deformities of the femoral head. It usually develops during growth spurts and occurs secondary to weakness caused by collagen deficiencies. Additionally, obesity increases the risk for developing the condition, and over 80% of children diagnosed with slipped, capital, femoral epiphysis are obese. Treatment involves preventing further slipping until that physial plate closes, The most common surgical procedure is screw fixation, which involves the use of screws to keep the ball of the femur from slipping out of position. Next up is scoliosis. Scoliosis is a lateral curvature of the spine that is greater than 10 degrees. In mild cases, the individual may have no outward signs, no significant outward signs, but more severe cases can cause asymmetrical shoulders, a visible curvature of the spine, rib deformities, cardiopulmonary complications, and pain. Now, a common method for scoliosis screening used in schools is the ADAMS Forward Bend test. However, the test is not conclusive for scoliosis and other diagnostics are utilized. The key diagnostics used for scoliosis are physical examination, spinal radiograph, CT scan, and MRI. Additionally, A scoliometer is a tool used to measure that angle of the spine, and it looks like a cross between a ruler and a level. The most widely used measurement to quantify the degree of spinal abnormality is the Cobb angle. So less than 10 degrees is considered normal. So a lateral curve less than 10 degrees is normal. 10 to 25 degrees is mild scoliosis. 26 to 45 degrees is moderate scoliosis, and anything greater than 45 degrees is severe scoliosis. So mild to moderate scoliosis is typically treated with bracing, and bracing has come a long way since I was a teenager. However, when the Cobb angle gets above 40 degrees, then surgery is typically recommended. It's important to note that scoliosis tends to affect girls more than boys, and this next condition affects boys more than girls, and that is pectus excavatum. So this is a congenital chest wall deformity caused by abnormal growth of cartilage that's connecting the sternum to the ribs, and what this results in is a sunken chest appearance. The severity of the deformity will range from mild to severe. Those with moderate to severe pectus excavatum can experience respiratory difficulties such as shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, and chest pain. Severe cases can even put pressure on the heart, leading to cardiopulmonary impairment. The treatment for moderate to severe cases is surgery. Now let's move on to talk briefly about kyphosis and lordosis. Kyphosis is an outward curvature or hump of that thoracic spine and is often related to posture. As I said that, I set up straighter. And then lordosis, also known as swayback, is an inward curvature of the cervical or lumbar spine that causes the abdomen and the child to protrude forward and the buttocks to protrude outward. Children with spinal curvature abnormalities may have stiffness, they may have tight hamstrings, and they could even have back pain. When significant, the curvature can lead to psychosocial issues regarding body image. Treatment involves managing the cause of the curvature. The plan may involve losing excess weight, postural correction, supportive garments, physical therapy, and stretching. NSAIDs, heat and cold may also be used to address any pain that may be present. Next up in our parade of musculoskeletal disorders of children is osteomyelitis. This infection of the bone most often occurs in the pelvis, in the humerus, the tibia, the femur or the foot. It can be related to an open fracture or a puncture wound. It can be related to a nearby tissue infection, surgery, burns, even things that seem unrelated like pyelonephritis, otitis media, and even respiratory infections. Signs and symptoms of osteomyelitis are pain, fever, tachycardia, swelling at that site, limited range of motion, and reluctance to bear weight or use that affected extremity. Treatment involves a pretty extensive course of IV antibiotics for weeks to four months in some cases. Surgery may be indicated in severe or chronic osteomyelitis. Now let's talk about juvenile idiopathic arthritis. This is a chronic childhood arthritis that involves inflammation of the joint synovium and the surrounding tissues. Over time, it can develop into adhesions, which are bands of scar-like tissue, and ankylosis, which is an abnormal stiffening of a joint due to fusion of the bones. Both can cause pain and severely limit mobility and range of motion. Now, there are several different types of juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and symptoms will vary depending on the type. However, some commonalities among all types are things like joint swelling, joint pain, warmth at the joint, and stiffness. That's all typically worse after periods of immobility, such as when getting up in the morning. Additionally, other body systems can be affected, leading to things like uveitis, rash, fevers, and even growth abnormalities. The treatment for juvenile idiopathic arthritis includes pain medication, anti-inflammatory medications, DMARDs, which are disease-modifying anti rheumatic drugs, glucocorticoids, heat therapy, physical therapy, and occupational therapy. Next up, we have achondroplasia. In achondroplasia, cartilage is unable to transition into bone and unable to change into bone, resulting in dwarfism. It is a genetic disorder with a wide range of symptoms, including disproportionate short stature, short limbs, macrocephaly or a large head, hypotonia, which can affect motor skill development bowing of the legs, a flat nose, a prominent forehead, and a maximum height of four feet. Potential complications associated with achondroplasia include obesity, sleep apnea, recurrent ear infections, lordosis and or kyphosis, and hydrocephalus. Now there is no cure for achondroplasia but patients may undergo treatment to manage complications. They may also receive growth hormone and there is a newer medication called vasorotide. This medication is used to increase height in children with achondroplasia who are five years of age and older. All right we're down to our final two. Next up we have osteochondroma. So osteochondroma is the most common non-cancerous bone tumor in children. Now, they are typically symptom-free. They typically don't cause any symptoms, but there may be a noticeable bump that could cause the child some discomfort or it could press on nerves leading to muscle weakness. Osteochondromas typically occur near a growth plate, especially around the upper arm and the knee. The osteochondroma grows until puberty is complete, and they're more likely to be present in male children. When the osteochondroma causes pain, affects growth, or restricts range of motion, then surgical removal may be necessary. And then for our last one, we'll talk about osteosarcoma. Osteosarcoma is the most common malignant or cancerous bone tumor in children, though it's important to know that it is rare overall. Signs and symptoms of osteosarcoma include pain that progresses over time, it may be so severe it wakes the child from sleep, they'll have tenderness, swelling, stiffness, they could have difficulty walking, fractures, weight loss, anemia, and fatigue. When the osteosarcoma is located near the spinal cord, the child may complain of back pain that radiates to the extremities. So osteosarcoma is treated with chemotherapy and surgery. Some children may require joint replacement surgery. They may need an allograft with cadaver bone, while others may need to have the limb amputated. There is a highly specialized type of amputation surgery called rotationplasty. And in this procedure, the knee with the sarcoma is removed along with the surrounding tissue. So they take a good portion of the leg, including that upper thigh the nerves, the blood vessels, they're all preserved and the calf and the foot are rotated 180 degrees and then attached to the portion of the upper thigh that remains. The foot now points backwards, essentially allowing that ankle joint to serve as a knee joint, which is pretty genius. And this allows for much greater mobility when used with a prosthetic device. So there you have it, your summary, your overview of musculoskeletal abnormalities and disorders in children. If I missed one, please write and let me know. It seemed like every time I dug into it, I found another one. So of course, I probably missed some. So if there are any out there that you want to hear about, please let me know. and We can do a follow up to that. So I will see you back here next week, where we're going to be talking about how to know when your patient is in respiratory distress and may need to be intubated. I'll see you back here for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.
1: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories.